maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Coming up on the podcast, cultural historian Robert Peckham. He's here to discuss his book, Fear, an Alternative History of the World, which looks at some of the more shadowy, scarier forces driving major historical change over the last few centuries. Joining him in conversation is Sophie McBain, associate editor of The New Statesman. Her work focuses on the intersection of psychology, science, and where society's less explored narratives meet. You can listen to this episode ad-free and get a lot more member-only content by becoming a member of Intelligence Squared by heading over to intelligencesquared.com membership or by subscribing to the channel on Apple Podcasts. You can also sign up to the Intelligence Squared newsletter to find out about events coming up with the likes of Nick Cave, Rory Stewart, Mary Beard, and more. Just sign up via the link in the episode description. But now let's join Robert Peckham and Sophie McBain with more. Anyone who follows the news cycle knows that between conflict and pandemics, the looming threat of climate change and ultra-powerful AI, not to mention political scaremongering and moral panics, we're never short of things to feel fearful of. On the podcast today, we're getting up close and personal with the concept of fear with the writer and cultural historian Robert Peckham. His recent book, Fear, an Alternative History of the World, argues that fear is one of the main driving forces of human history, and it traces the politics of fear from the outbreak of bubonic plague in the 14th century to the coronavirus pandemic today. Peckham was previously Professor of History and M.B. Lee Endowed Professor in the Humanities and Medicine at the University of Hong Kong. He's also the founder of OpenCube, an organization that promotes the integration of the arts, science, and technology for health. His writing can be found in publications including Foreign Affairs, The Guardian, New Statesman, and more. He joins me today from New York. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, Robert. Thank you very much, Sophie. So I wanted to begin by asking you a bit about how you came to this book and the idea that you explore in it that fear has played a much bigger role and a more complex role in history than, than most people appreciate. So there are several routes to the book. Um, my background is as a historian, predominantly a historian of, of um, colonial history uh, and epidemics. Uh, and so I became very interested in the role of fear um, during and after epidemics. 
to that swan sort of more of an academic route in. Many years ago, I was involved uh, in an episode in uh, Afghanistan um, that was also an important prompter for me thinking about uh, the place of fear in history. Um, I was involved in a, in a terror, t terror attack. Uh, and aside from the fear that I felt um, d during that event, uh, what interested me retrospectively uh, was thinking about my fear within the context of a very complex geopolitical history, um, a history uh, of colonialism, uh, post-colonialism in, in that part of the world. I guess that was a spur not only to, to my interest in colonial history, but also um, ultimately to thinking about what fear is. And so, you know, well, that was 35 years ago. Fear has um, been a feature in, in my writing, um, predominantly around, around epidemics. And of course, um, I began writing this book against the backdrop of, uh, of protests in Hong Kong, uh, pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong, and then what became a pretty brutal crackdown on those protests. Uh, and then along came the coronavirus. So all of these sort of form a kind of quite urgent backdrop to my thinking about, about fear. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I found really interesting was when you describe your response to this terror attack and, and fleeing, uh, fleeing in a car back to Pakistan and, and racing past other civilians who were on foot and, and leaving um, in a complete, in complete mortal panic, you wondered afterwards whether you could have been following a pre-coded plot line of, of panic. And I thought that was very interesting because we think of panic and we think of fear as very sort of immediate emotional responses. But are they kind of always political emotions? Are they always mediated by politics and by culture? Well, I, I argue in the book that um, uh, fear is not only... Uh, you know, a neurophysiological phenomenon, but it's also a cultural phenomenon. In other words, we sort of inherit um, and we learn how to fear. Um, and so it's that sort of cultural um, dimension of fear that sort of I predominantly am interested in in, in this book. Um, and so is it, I, I guess that's, um, that's the sort of pre-coding element. Uh, and that opens up the door, I think, for a more positive um, perspective on fear. In other words, if we understand that fear has been shaped historically and that it's something that's enculturated, uh, then we're a step closer to being able to sort of manage and deal with that fear. Uh, where if you've got a sort of deterministic view of fear as a sort of ingrained biological phenomenon, um, then fear, there's not much we can do about fear. It's part of our sort of biology. Um, so it's that sort of cultural element. I think in relation to sort of my experience in Afghanistan, it's this, uh, there is an immediate immediacy, obviously. You're caught up in some event. Um, and there's a sort of focusing that happens in this uh, sort of fear. Uh, you gain new perspective on life. You begin to reevaluate what's important from what isn't important. And so that's the sort of kind of what I would call the sort of motivational aspect of fear that fear can really focus your uh your 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 understanding on on some sort of uh, for of threat or whatever um and i think that you know if there's a sort of benevolent or beneficial aspect of fear uh that i also kind of talk about in the book it's it's that it's that sort of motivational aspect so the complex and in a disentangling of of that experience of fear i think uh, you know 
fear is a cultural phenomenon, fear is bound up in this complex geopolitical history. Um, my fear versus other people's fear. Um, you know, what is the relationship between personal fear and collective fear? Um, all of these were what I set out to sort of think about. And the book is an intellectual history. It's a history. In other words, it, it, it looks at how fear in part has been understood in different moments. And it looks at continuities in that understanding, but also differences in how fear has been understood. And it isn't a global history in the sense that what I'm interested in is the exportation of a European experience of fear. And that's my colonial historical background. I'm interested in the moment that fear gets wired into a sort of governmentality in Europe, the centralizing power in the state in the 16th and 17th centuries during the wars of religion. That's the moment that the management of fear goes global as the European powers start to carve out their imperial dominions. So it's a sort of fear that is one sense centripetal history and centrifugal. It's about the centralization of fear and the dispersal of fear. I find it's probably much easier to write about uh, fear events, pandemics, wars, and so forth, than it is the to, to focus on the sort of systemic fears, the dispersal of fears through systems like slavery, industrialization, global capitalism. Um, but I'm interested in sort of balancing an idea of a fear event that can tell us about how fear is being sort of contested uh, with that sort of dissemination, diffusion of fear that, that created the world that we live in today. Yeah. And, and you said that when you were living in Hong Kong during the uh, the pro-democracy protests and the very brutal crackdown on the, on these protests um, with China using fear of the pandemic as an excuse to extend its powers. You mentioned that one of the signs that really moved you that had been left up by a protester said um, freedom from fear. And obviously the protester meant freedom from the fear that comes from living under a dictatorship, the fear of arbitrary arrest, punishment for minor infractions. But it made me wonder whether freedom from fear is something that is achievable and even desirable. Because, I mean, on a, in a biological perspective, fear is something very protective. Um, what about politically? I think the formulation freedom from fear itself has a complex history that, it, in part, I try and, tr and trace from through the 20th century. Um, but I think the relationship between freedom and fear is a really, really interesting one. Um, I sort of begin the book with a sort of metaphor from uh, the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard, uh, and that is um, where he describes an individual climbing to the top of a precipice and looking down, uh, and the sort of urge that comes, you know, that that, that person could throw herself off off this precipice, and and it's an illustration of the sort of kinds of anxiety that come with freedom. That when we're given lots of choices, it becomes we become anxious about the choices that we can make. Um, and I think one of the complexities here is that with freedom comes this anxiety. And this is one of the relationships with power because often powerful figures will, uh, claim to be making the choices for people um, precisely because of the problems of freedom, um, that the freedom sets us up you know, to be anxious. So the relation is a, is a very is a very complicated one, and I guess that what what moved me there was the the, the placement of this, you know, uh, of this message 
in the context of ongoing violence that was happening in Hong Kong. Um, so it's easy to sort of intellectualize um, and to sort of write a sort of philosophical history of the relationship between fear uh, and freedom. And here it was sort of in very much sort of embedded into the material you know, structure of a bus stop in Hong Kong during what were, turned out to be a very violent clash between authorities and students who were hauled up in the um, hold up in the in the in the university there intelligence squared is a tight-knit team doing big things and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks that's why i want to talk to you for a minute about netsuite netsuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. I suppose more generally, you write about how this understanding of of how of the links between between fear and freedom and fear and hope is slightly underdeveloped that we think of fear as a, a tool used by dictators but don't really think about the other uses of fear in our politics and i wondered if you could explain a little bit more about that yeah so it, it this isn't a sort of wicked despot story about how fear is simply coercive and used to sort of control populations of course that's an element of it um, but what I tried to show is that fear um, is very integral to hope in the sense that when we espouse some value, some cause, um, when we have a sort of an aspirational uh, politics that looks to the future, uh, there's always a fear that somehow that future may be thwarted, um, it may be undermined by forces gathering uh, to, to contest it. Um, so so in, that, in that sense, um, I'm sort of very interested in how we got to where we are now with the sort of fear-centered politics. And there's a line of argument that I have some sympathy with that um, in the middle of the 20th century is part of the experience of the Second World War, the Holocaust and the horrors in, in, in Stalin's uh, Soviet Union, that um, liberalism became very defensive, over-defensive, over-protective. Um, and that what uh, the political theorist Ju Judith Schlar calls the liberalism of fear took hold. Um, and that sort of we've inherited that uh, and our politics lacks that aspirational vision, uh, progressive vision of the future. So I think um, if there's a sort of um, uh, challenge at the end, as I see it, is it's how we overcome a fear politics to build an aspirational kind of politics. And 
in the US we're ramping up uh, you know for the presidential election and it's this extraordinary extent to which it's completely fear dominated uh, it's fear mongering and then contesting fears but fear is defining the political discourse and what do we as citizens do in in that kind of political climate how do you avoid being exploited by fear, being manipulated as a result of your fears? Well, I guess as a historian, I'm going to say that understanding uh, where fears have come from um, is an important part of that process of contesting our manipulation by fear. And I would say that the very fact that sort of we're having a conversation that fear has entered as being foregrounded in debate is a sign that sort of we're aware of our manipulation by fear. And that that's sort of one step towards, I would hope, moving towards a sort of uh, a less fear-dominated politics. Yeah, and when you write that we're more fearful than we've ever been, do you is there a way to measure fearfulness over time and to get a sense of are we becoming less resilient, more vulnerable to fear, or is it that we simply have more things to be afraid of? Well, I mean, uh, uh, to be clear, that the, the fear has been um, fear has been a, a, an element in human history, you know, and increasingly science and archaeology is showing us in prehistory. So um, it's not as if we're exceptional in our fear. I think there are um, uh, new, uh, new fears that are coalescing around certain phenomena. Um, I think, for example, technology, AI debates about AI, about um, you know uh, human autonomy, about privacy, uh, linked to issues of mistrust, disinformation, misinformation, uh, and then underpinning that um, are you know new structures, economic structures that that are centralizing power in the hands of very few people who basically control the platforms that we use to communicate on. So there are these there are these sorts of kind kinds of fears that are coalescing. So it's not that the internet itself, um, for example, is necessarily uh, uh, you know uh, conducive of of fear. And one of the things that I'm trying to chart in the book, as an important strand in the book, is this history of technology. One could go back to the uh, invention of of language, uh, written language, uh, the printing press. You know the telegraph, the 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 wireless, the TV, cinema, etc., and all of these technologies have the same ambiguous relationship to, to to fear. In other words, they they create new pathways for fear, but they also create possibilities of managing fear. Um, and sort of, I talk a little bit about this, in, both in terms of the telegraph, which was originally seen as a, a useful tool for governance, and then it was seen that it could be sabotaged. It could be used uh, for you know by revolutionaries to. To, to, to under, undermine government. And so um, technology has always had this sort of ambiguous uh, relationship to fear. And it's perhaps in the global interconnected world that we live in, um, you know, become a little bit more intense, uh, uh, this fear. Uh, but we're battling for thing, with things that we've known about and experienced over some time. And I tried to draw connections between as I see it, sort of the fears that emerge in industrialized societies uh, and, and the fears that are sort of have been reconfigured in our post-industrial world. Yeah, yeah. One thing I was really interested in was you, um, you quote Salman Rushdie from the 1980s saying that the 
more that we focus on the business of of keeping safe, the more we realize that there's no such thing as absolute security. And I think the idea was that you're actually much less likely than at any point in human history to suffer some untimely, untimely, very painful, premature death. Um, but I also kind of wondered about that and wondered whether really the, the, the one thing that's happening now is that fundamentally our fears of, of loss, of death, of meaninglessness are unavoidable. And in a way, what's happening now, particularly in lots of Western countries, is that there's a decline um, in faith in the kinds of things that once gave people meaning and solace um, when it comes to these sort of existential fears that we all have to live with. And if that was a part of this story as well. I think that's a really interesting point. I would agree with what you're saying about, um, you know, other kind of structures of belief that sort of carry us through and channel uh, our fears, the fears that we have. I think the relationship between fear and risk is interesting. And I think there's a danger in the sort of democratic Western world of a kind of uh, solipsism fear in the sense that we become, uh, we can become very preoccupied about um, the fears that we may feel that we're experiencing. Whereas in large parts of the world, you know, where people, Iran, China, Russia, where people are actually experiencing different kinds of fears that are life and death threatening. Um, so I think we need to have a sort of context for thinking about fear in our societies, bearing in mind this global context. But I would agree with what you're saying, that um, what's different now is the sort of diminution of these um of, of these of these structures that I think has quite a long history now so one could sort of see them from the 19th century um and sort of we're finding other ways of managing fear and of course that's the moment that the marketization of fear enters into the picture that that, that, that uh, sort of remedies and mitigating products and services are offered uh, for us uh, in lieu maybe of a sort of spiritual uh, management of fear that we can sort of buy our happiness or buy our, the mitigation of fear uh, if if we buy this product or this service. So I think the, the marketization is an important story. I, I try to bring it into the book, um, and there are some sort of episodes, for example, in the 20th century with this sort of um, the the um, germ panic. Um, where, where, with new understanding of of the etiology of disease and the role that microorganisms play in, in disease, uh, mean that there's suddenly new attention on the potential of every surface to have bugs and germs that could, in some sense, harm us. And into this space uh, move a sort of industrial um, uh, companies that are trying to then market hygiene to us, um, and, and it sort of becomes this sort of uh, very useful panic in that sense, right? For, for selling things to us. And so we sort of inhabit partly that world uh, where our fears are sort of nurtured carefully by companies that sound to gain from that. Yeah, and I suppose one theme through this, whether it's um, sort of politically manufactured fear or um, or fear that's been stoked for commercial gain or or in fact just fear that emerges from from huge changes in in our world that are beyond our control the thing that is very useful when it comes to fear is having a sense of 
how real those fears are, how meaningful they are. And I wondered if there was any any sort of principles for, for how to do this, any guide in terms of how you determine which fears you listen to, which fears are legitimate, proportionate. That's a really interesting question. I, I would say that, that fears, even when they appear singular, are actually plural. They're compounded so that um, we may be fearful of something um, and then it turns out that it's not only that something, it's something else too. So if we take the pandemic, it's you know a fear of a virus, but then it soon becomes fear of uh, you know our social order or economic fears or you know our, our jobs, um, uh, you know our mental well-being, etc. So it's the sort of the liquid nature of fear that makes it particularly difficult to formulate some sort of general thesis. Also, if we go back to the fact uh, of the sort of cultural aspect of fear, because fear has changed how it's understood, um, imposing um, a kind of general theory uh, of fear across time um, becomes quite sort of problematic. Um, it, it, this isn't a sociological study. It's a historical study that tries to place fear um, without over-theorizing to a certain extent um, or judging how you know Shakespeare or Montaigne think about fear is trying to sort of in a sense take what they're saying as reflective of a period of time. Um, so if we take those thinkers, um, they're very important because they're uh, the lexicon of fear starts to be pinned down in the 16th, 17th century. Um, so I understand what you're trying to say and I, I think it's an, in an interesting one, but in a sense this book isn't trying to do that. Um, it, it's, it's more trying to look at the sort of uh, social cultural context in which our ideas of fear emerge at different times. It does look at continuities uh, between them. Um, but as I said, I think, I think this idea of a liquid fear, of a fear that uh, is elusive because it sort of moves, that as soon as we think we know what the object of that fear is, it turns out it was never that object. Um, it was something else. Um, and it's this multi-layered shifting aspect that makes it really, really hard to manage. And even people um, or authorities or rulers in history who have sort of, who have, um, you know, used fear as a sort of, um, as a coercive tool, end up often not being able to sort of manage the fear because it disperses into fears that they can't then uh, keep a lid on. And so, because one of your aims um, as you go into this book, was that the idea that by understanding the history of fear and the the logic of fear, that it that in itself can be quite being armed with this knowledge can be quite useful um, in terms of understanding politics. What are the 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 sort of vague principles that that you can bring from the study of fear that might help someone? slightly better understand their own political fears or understand how the way in which that, for instance, that, as you mentioned, the election in the US is using fear has become a very fear-based contest. Well, I, I guess as soon as we foreground fear as something that is manufactured, that is cultural, uh, that is sort of, that has an engineered aspect to it, that it's not inevitable, um, we move we're in a better place then 
to sort of contest the kinds of fears that are sold to us. And I guess it's the uh, it's a, it's the developing of that sort of critical approach to what fear is uh, uh, and how it's uh, sold to us that I'm kind of saying that history history can help in that process. Um, yeah. So so my my argument is more about sort of developing that sort of critical approach to to, to fear. I think that. Uh, if you look at the literature, literature of fear, it, it, it's vast, it's very complex, and fear is still <clears throat> little understood. I mean, there's still a lot of debate in neuroscience about how the brain processes fear, where fear is located, if it's located in a single place, how dispersed it is. Um, and we could go down the rabbit hole of pursuing a definition of fear, either on neurophysiological, in a neurophysiological sense. But what I chose to do was to say, yes, there is a biology. Obviously, there's a biology of fear. Um, but what I'm interested in is that cultural aspect, the, the ways in which we're educated into fear. And my point is that if we're educated into fear, we can uneducate ourselves out of fear. Um, so I, I think there's a sort of political uh, dimension to that process, uh, as you were saying, that, that because politics is so dominated by fear, um, you know that we need a citizenry that can challenge that, um, and can be unafraid of um, articulating, you know, ideals, uh, uh, you know, progressive ideas of and values that it thinks are worth fighting for, rather than sort of descending into, um, you know, the the, the myriad uh, rabbit hole of fears that we, as we, I think we are currently um, doing. Yeah. And has has writing this book and doing this research changed your your personal approach to fear, changed how you feel as you read about the sort of many terrifying things that we read about in the newspaper or hear about in our politics? Yes, it's hard not to. I mean, you open a you know newspaper, you everywhere there is fear, and fear is is used in all kinds of ways. Uh, and to describe all kinds of situations. Um, and I think that sort of the long durée approach, the sort of uh, the, that I've taken and, and the sort of reading and the thinking, you know, has has given me a new perspective on it. Um, you know, I have, I, you know, for, for the 20 years that I've been working on infectious diseases, it's something that I've always been fascinated by, um, that, the, that the impact of a disease, you know, can be, of course, huge, um, but the legacy that it can leave in terms of uh, a legacy of fear um, can have all kinds of extraordinary consequences. So I'm thinking, um, for example, of the bubonic plague in in the late 19th century in India that killed it, the plague probably killed 15 million people globally, maybe 11 million of those in in India, and um, and it gave rise to sort of a colonial panic. To sort of try and manage this epidemic, uh, at the same time as as um, you know panic and fear amongst local people, but that fear was then harnessed in an anti-colonial movement, and so you can sort of see that the sort of uh, the bubonic plague was sort very instrumental in 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 galvanising uh, you know uh, uh, that that sort of resistance to British rule. So there are all kinds of ways that when we start to think about events like an epidemic. 
we understand that sort of fear plays an important role in it that kind of is often sidelined and is a background story. Um, you know, and I think that's what I'm trying to do, that there are many ways you could tell story. You could write the history of love. You could write the history of, you know, whatever. Um, but I've chosen to foreground the history of fear, not to say that all the other elements aren't there. Um, but what I wanted to do is to make that more obvious um, and um, uh, because I found it very surprising that given uh, you know given the, the, the importance of fear that it there is very little historiography, um, surprisingly little on fear. Yeah, I wondered if it was a very kind of strange process for you. I mean the, the pandemic was was very difficult and surreal for lots of people, but for someone who's well, most people never really think that deeply about pandemics. So when he spent a lot of time studying infectious diseases and the sort of unintended political consequences of that, did it feel a little bit like, do you feel a sort of disconnect between how people were talking about the pandemic and the things that, you, that you'd already learned about the sort of very, very long political and sort of unanticipatable um, politics of a pandemic. It was a very strange experience. In 2016, I published a book published by Cambridge University Press called Epidemics of Modern Nation. Really, it was a history of uh, of Asia through the lens of, of epidemics. And so I sort of was interested in the way that epidemics sort of foreground some certain kinds of issues, um, you know, political, environmental, etc. And so it was very, very strange. Um, and I, I was di directing a centre at the University of Hong Kong, which is a collaboration between the Faculty of Arts and the Faculty of Medicine. And we were looking at the sort of social cultural um, dimensions of disease, particularly infectious disease. And so along comes this pandemic that is like an extraordinary, in some sense, case study for what we've been doing. Um, and um, at the beginning, I was writing in, and a lot about the, the, the sort of pandemic, but um, it's always surprising how things then um, uh, turn out. Um, and um, I think that um, there is a danger in, I wrote a piece for The Lancet about the dangers of analogizing that immediately when the pandemic happened, people were comparing it to other pandemics, other epidemics in history. Um, and so, you know, the, the, one of the dangers in doing that is that that you 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 kind of brush over the specifics of one epidemic and you generalize, uh, and generalizations, you know, they can be very useful, um, but they can also be dangerous in, in that you stop seeing uh, the particular, you know, drivers of of a pandemic, the particular factors that are playing into the the, 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 the pandemic. But yes, I mean, uh, the, I guess the things that sort of um, confirmed, uh, you know, my research were the ways in which politics um, soon became so entangled in the uh, pandemic. And so it becomes very dif difficult to think about the pandemic outside of this sort of um, geopolitical world. And the vantage from China obviously was very interesting. Um, and um, one of the things that I'm interested in is the ways in which the Chinese approach to the pandemic, the lockdown, the draconian lockdowns, the sort of quarantining, um, then became a model for the world to follow. 
And so the sort of political ramifications of that are interesting. Um, here you have a sort of totalitarian society, a surveillance state, um, and its model is then being used across the Western world. And so I think there are legitimate questions about going back to freedom and fear as what do we do in moments of crisis? Um, you know, how do democracies keep functioning in transparent ways? What's the role of fear in democratic societies? I think um, the debates now coming up, uh, you know, about SAGE and the government and uh, all the issues of how fear was used. Fear is a legitimate tool, can be a legitimate tool in getting people to adhere to mandates. Uh, but then if that fear then is producing countervailing effects, you know, how how is that managed? How are these things managed? So I think the the pandemic brought out uh, many of the issues that I had been thinking about and sort of graphically illustrated illustrated some of the sort of elements um, that I had um, I had studied over several years. Yeah, and I suppose in the US it created some very strange alliances in terms of the sort of COVID skeptic movement and the conspiracy yes. theorists drawing in the far right and sort of far out uh, yoga teachers and fitness gurus who kind of joined forces, that it was a real reshaping of the political landscape well, in, in some ways. A reshaping or a confirmation of, it, uh, of the sort of fragmented nature of the political landscape. I think one of the things that was interesting is that um, politicians that had, had, had been sort of very fear-oriented fear politicians then tried to downplay the fear of the pandemic. And if you've used fear as your political tool over many years, it then becomes very difficult then to backtrack and say, well, actually, we shouldn't fear this pandemic. So uh, I was sort of interested in 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 sort of that dynamics. But I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the pandemic uh, became an interesting um, way, an interesting way of sort of, 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 of making visible um, the, the sort of political landscape, not only in the US, but, you know, across the world in, in a really, you know, uh, important way. Um, and I think that hopefully some of that uh, has enabled us to think in different ways about politics and, um, you know, to be more prepared to challenge uh, models that are presented to us. Um, I'm saying that in a diplomatic way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but, but yes, extraordinary times, of course, the pandemic isn't, isn't over. Um, yeah, but I've, I've, I've just had it. <laughs> Me too, actually. <laughs> you, so, if, if you've yeah. got kids at school, you've got a direct pathway. <laughs> I know, I know. We'll just pick up every variant every kind of month or two. It's, it's pretty, it's, it's, so it's, it's not over. And um and I think its its effect still lingers, and it will do for some time. Yeah. Robert, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Sophie. I really appreciate it. That was Robert Peckham, author of Fear, An Alternative History of the World, available now from Profile Books and at good bookstores near you. I've been Sophie McBain. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced and edited by Tom Hall. If you'd like to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, do sign up for our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com.